Thank you for listening to a Christ Church Showmans. This is Jared Sparks, one of the pastors at Christ Church Carbondale. We want to thank you so much for listening, as Ransom said, my son. And we ultimately hope that these are God-honoring. And because they are God-honoring, we hope that they are also edifying and encouraging and, and challenging to you in the best sort of way. Thanks so much for listening. Romans 1, 1, the gospel of God. Here's what it says. Paul, a servant of Jesus Christ, called to be an apostle, set apart for the gospel of God. God used the book of Romans to change literally the entire world. Uh, We don't know how the gospel got to the city of Rome. Nameless men and women brought the gospel to the city and the empire of Rome. Think about that. Their names aren't even in the book. We don't know how they got there. But this eternally purposeful life that was lived, God used them to bring this message to Rome and it ended up changing all of Rome, all of the empire, and eventually all of the world. But we don't know how the church was planted in Rome. We don't even know how, God didn't even see fit to put their name in here. We don't even know, which I think is remarkable. And when it was planted, we we really don't know, but sometime it was before Paul arrived, sometime before Paul arrived, it was possibly after the day of Pentecost and 3,000 people met Jesus, and then after the dispersion that happened in Acts chapter 5 from all the, in Acts chapter uh, uh, 8, after Stephen was uh, stoned to death and the persecution broke out, some say that from either Jerusalem that day, because there were people from all over the Roman Empire that day, there were people who kind of trickled their way back to Rome and somehow or another the gospel made it that way. Or maybe after persecution broke out in Jerusalem, that's how the gospel ended up going to Rome. But we don't know for sure. But the city of Rome was the empire of all empires. It, Rome had its gods, gods. Rome had Greek mythology. Rome had its philosophers. Rome was the center, literally, of the entire world. It had a history of thinkers, educators, Uh, Highly educated people. It had rich culture, rich history. New York City could not compare to the city and the empire of Rome. Rome was a city that was not likely to be impacted by a Jewish carpenter from Galilee. A small town that nobody knew the name of. Galilee. Who has impact in Rome from Galilee? Well, a man named Jesus, apparently. The gospel of Jesus ended up turning Rome inside out and upside down and right side up. The gospel just infiltrated every aspect of Roman society until one day, a few hundred years later, even the emperor, Constantine, became a Christian. And then all of a sudden, uh, the first Christian nation or empire in the history of the world was the Roman Empire. And we think today about cities, liberal cities, large cities, global cities, urban centers. We think about them things like I'm sure people thought about Rome Well, the gospel has impact in rural Kentucky and rural Illinois and rural places throughout this country, but not New York City. Definitely not Rome. But somehow or another, these nameless people who were not remembered brought this gospel message to Rome and the gospel ended up being planted and a church was planted there. The gospel continued to go. So the book of Romans ended up impacting not just Rome, this letter impacted the churches there. It also impacted about 1,500 years later, 1,400 years later or so, a Catholic monk and professor named Martin Luther. He was teaching through the book of Romans. He was a Catholic who was highly educated, very sharp, and he wanted to know how can a man be right with God. He understood the magnitude of God's law. He understood the magnitude of God's law. And if he had to live according to God's law, he was doomed. 
He didn't have any hope. He couldn't understand the people who were all around him who thought, hey, what's the big deal? Who thought they could be saved by God's grace plus their own efforts. Martin Luther saw God's grace plus my own efforts still equals me being doomed. And he was in agony about it. Well, he was teaching the book of Romans, living, trying to live to be right every day with God. He gave his whole life to God every minute, every moment of every waking day. And he was under this impression that if, if I have God's help, enough of it, and if I try hard enough, everybody tells me I can be saved, but it's still not doing it. It, it almost sounds right. God can help you be a Christian. God can help you be saved. God can help you keep his law. Sounds right. But that message will get you damned. God will help you be saved, or God will help you keep the, the law, or God will help you is not the message of the gospel at all. And Martin Luther found no hope in it. It's not that God helps us and that we begin to help ourselves at all. And Luther saw this problem. And as he was studying the book of Romans, God opened his eyes. He laid his eyes in Romans chapter 1, verse 17, and he saw that the righteous shall live by faith. And God opened his eyes. It's not that humans simply need God's help to find their path or find their way to him. It's that God rescues sinners by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone, apart from works of the law. And so from Luther came the Protestant Reformation. The people started to read the word of God for themselves. Gutenberg made the printing press. And all of a sudden, because of the Protestant Reformation, people began to hear the word preached in their native language. No longer in Latin, no longer disguised to where they couldn't hear it. The people had the word of God, and the word of God did all the work. Martin Luther said, we ate, preached, slept, and drank beer, and God did all the work. The word of God did it. God rescues sinners by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. God used Romans to change the world. How about Southern Illinois? May, may this be our, our story. May it be our story. May this mark the beginning of a multiple-year journey, whatever God would have for us, and certainly we'll take some breaks in between, but we're, just, we're, we're taking our time. We don't have to be in a hurry. We're in, the, we're in this together for the rest of our lives, right? So we don't have to be in a hurry. We set out on an adventure. God, would you please save people in this city? I've heard for decades, City of Carbondale is a hard place to do ministry. SIU is a hard campus. If God works there, people would be on their knees right now, this very moment. We need God in Southern Illinois. We need God in Carbondale. God, would you save? Would you set people free? Would you save our children? May, may we see revival in the lives of our children. How awesome would it be if we got to see all of our kids baptized? Trusting in Christ. Celebrating together. We get to do that here in a few weeks with Riley Ramsey. So excited about that. But God, would you please do this in the lives of our neighbors, our families, friends, cities, region. Don't we want to see that? How cool would it be for us to all be old and thinking, can you believe what God did? Can you? Do you remember? I mean, in the city, the churches were just getting filled. In the same way that people were coming outside of the city to go to the wilderness to hear a crazy man preach, John the Baptist, how unstrategic was that? God had John the Baptist not go to the urban center, but go preach to a bunch of trees in wilderness and eat weird food. And then God brought people out, talk about lacking missional aptitude. John's out here preaching and doing anything. that Every missiologist would say, go to the urban center. God says, go to the wilderness and I'll send them to you. 
Did I hear that right, God? But when God worked in Jerusalem, they all came out to hear John the Baptist preach. God can do anything. God can save our neighbors. He can save our friends. He can save our family. He can save people in this city by the thousands and the tens of thousands. And may we see it. That's what we want to see. Verse 1, Paul. Who is Paul? Martin Lloyd-Jones preached 27 sermons on the first chapter of Romans. We're not going to do that, I promise. His first sermon was just on the first word, Paul. Sorry, I dropped the batteries here. But, but who is Paul? I think it warrants a little bit of looking into. The Apostle Paul was an intellectual giant. He was Jew, born to the right family in the right means, the tribe of Benjamin. He was a Pharisee who was educated at the feet of the great Gamaliel, who was the leader of the Sanhedrin. Gamaliel was an intellectual giant, and Paul learned at his feet. Paul was also an intellectual giant. He had esteem, power, wealth, prestige. People knew who Paul of Tarsus was because of his mind and because of his passion. He was zealous for God, zealous for God before he met Christ. And he persecuted the way of Jesus out of that zeal. We've talked about this several months back, but for Paul, it wasn't enough that false teaching was out there. He went to stomp it out. He couldn't stand his God being violated by these Christians. So he persecuted out of zeal these Christians who were following the way. Then one day when Paul was walking on the road to Damascus, Jesus drew near. Jesus himself drew near. And his life was never the same. One instant. Paul, Paul, why are you, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? Who is this? Jesus. It was Jesus himself. Met Paul. Paul went into Damascus. Somebody said, hey, you gotta sh- I need to show you how much you must suffer for the sake of Christ. Paul devoted his life, gave his life away to the spread of the gospel. He immediately went to Arabia for three years. And then the Holy Spirit, I believe, taught him and connected the dots throughout all of the Old Testament, the things concerning himself. And so Paul, with that giant intellect, Paul with memory verses in his mind, Paul with entire books of the Bible memorized, is out now thinking and connecting the dots. How is Jesus fulfilling all of these things? And then when we see Paul begin to mark his way in territory preaching the gospel, we see that he was absolutely a gospel lion. He saw Christ everywhere and knew that Christ was the whole point of human history and human future. He gave his life away to the spread of the gospel. He was persecuted, shipwrecked, devoted every hour to Christ. He saw God do many things, saw revivals, saw cities turned upside down like Ephesus who were causing riots in the streets because of this message. They were going and burning their books of witchcraft and sorcery. Paul saw this with his own eyes. He then wrote letters after seeing God do these mighty things throughout all these cities on his missionary journeys. After these churches were planted, Paul, out of concern and through the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, would write letters to these churches. His pastoral concern is seen in the pages of the Bibles that we have in our homes and here our laps today. He loved this church at Rome, even though he had never been there. He longed to go there at some point. He wanted this church in Rome to help him because he wanted to go and preach the gospel where Christ had not been named, beyond Rome. He wanted to go into Spain. And he thought, if I can go to Rome, if I can see these believers that I've heard so much about, if I can meet with them and talk with them, maybe they'll fund the gospel going forth into Spain. But he longed to be with them and longed to preach the gospel to them. In verse 15 of chapter 1, we see, I am eager to preach the gospel to you also who are in Rome. You know, in chapter 15, he said that I'm eager to preach the gospel where Christ has not been named. here's Here's the emphasis of true and right preaching. The gospel goes forth to believers and non-believers. And Paul is eager to preach the gospel to this church in Rome. 
Because believers never need to ever, ever, ever get past or get over the gospel of Jesus Christ. Do you know how precious Jesus is? I hope you're never in a position in your life where you think, I don't need the forgiveness of Jesus. I don't need his mercy. I got this. Paul wanted and was eager to preach the gospel in Rome. And then as we see Paul beginning to write this letter, he begins to indicate who he is. Now they had heard of him, they knew of the Apostle Paul, but Paul begins to introduce himself. He began to introduce himself. He was a prophet apostle, we'll see here in a little bit. And even though Paul was quite the man, Paul was again an intellectual, intellectual giant writing the words of scripture. He was consciously aware that God was speaking infallibly through him. He was quite the man. How did he introduce himself to those who are in Rome? And I want you to catch this. It's fantastic. Paul, a servant of Jesus Christ. Anybody in here have a King James Version Bible? What's your, sir, what's your say right there, Patty? Paul, a what? Bond servant? Bond servant. Servant, servant of Jesus Christ. Okay, If you'll look right next to servant, there's usually a one right there. And underneath at the bottom of your Bible, you'll see this word. Modern English translators have avoided using the word bondservant or slave because of its connotations to American colonialism. This word is slave, bondservant. And Paul, this mighty man, this giant of a man who has succeeded in everything, literally everything he's ever done who knew more than any of us in his mind, who experienced great revival and saw God do mighty things, I want you to note the, the humility of Apostle Paul. He didn't first go to his apostleship. He didn't first go to him being a son of God. He didn't first go to his sainthood. He said, I am a slave of Jesus Christ. The mighty Paul shows his might by humility that we see in this title. He's identifying himself in this way, willingly calling himself, I am a slave of Jesus. Now, Paul does this often. In fact, when he's talking about himself, he never once opens the letter saying or calling himself a saint or a son of God. However, and, and, and then we see like Romans and Philippians and in the book of Titus, he opens himself, opens, a, opens the letter in the same way. I'm a slave of Jesus Christ. We see that Peter does this and also Jesus' half-brother Jude does this as well. Opens the letters, their letters, by calling themselves a slave. And it was a word for, of identity, a Christian identity. He is a blood-bought person, bought by Jesus, and he has been set free from the bondage, set free from the bondage of walking and living on his own. He has been set free to being free, a bondservant of Christ. Now there's an irony here. And there, there are people who argue, argue, and this happens all over the place, that people, that humanity, they're born free. Now, we've talked about this before. Humans have volition. We make choices. But humans, make no mistake, are not born free. We are not free creatures. We are born in bondage. We are born in sin. And we're in a mess and don't even know it. And there's no person who's ever walked this land who has been born into freedom. You have to be set free. That's the whole point of the gospel of Jesus, that Jesus comes and sets slaves free. And true freedom, real freedom, is being a bondservant of Christ. Being a bondservant of Christ. 
Now, it, this is so interesting. Christians willingly know that they are owned by somebody else, but it doesn't sound like freedom. But Jesus and the Bible are their masters of paradoxes. And I think this is crucial. It's crucial that we see this. In verse 7 of Romans chapter 1, we see this. He says, to all who are in Rome, who are loved by God, called to be saints. He calls other believers saints. In chapter 8, he calls himself and other believers sons of God and heirs with Christ. And we need to be acquainted with these titles. These are true of us. You are the saints of God and you are the sons of God. But make no mistake, you are also the slaves of God. We never outgrow being a slave of Christ. Being a son and a saint does not throw aside this glorious identity, and there are treasures for us in it. I am owned by Christ. He can do with me whatever he pleases. I don't have to dictate my life or come up with a purpose for my life. I've been spared of that. Jesus has given me the purpose of my life. I don't have to come with him, tell him all my plans, and ask him to bless them all. I get to ask him, what's your plans? I want to follow you all the day of my, days of my life. I don't have to determine my purpose. I am owned by God. God, I'm yours. I trust you. Lead me. I will follow. What you say, I will do. What you say not to do, I won't do. God, I am yours. That's freedom. There's an irony in the world where there's a slavery that looks like freedom. Independence. I'm my own man. I'm my own woman. Nobody has control over me. I'm going to do things my way. You're in bondage. I'm sorry. You're not free. It's a facade, and at some point you'll see it or you'll die in delusion. But you're not free. But for those who will willingly say, I'll be a bondservant of Christ, I'll willingly submit myself to him, knowing that he purchased me and he's my owner. I'll follow him all the days of my life. That's freedom. And so often in the kingdom of God we see this. The first shall be last and the last shall be first. The way up is down. Huh? But that's how the kingdom of God works. We don't own God. He owns us. And there's great freedom in that. Friends, saints of God, sons and daughters of the living God, you are also slaves of God. And that's good news. Paul doesn't go on and just stop there. He continues. He says that he's called to be an apostle. Set apart for the gospel of God. Called. He's called to be an apostle. Now called in this context is very interesting. There's a general call that we see in the Bible where many are, many are called. And this gospel call that we begin to, to preach. We preach the gospel and call people everywhere to repent. But that's not the sense in which call, Paul is using this called. In this sense the word means summoned. Summoned. Paul was summoned summoned, by, like being summoned by a king, to be an apostle. Paul knows that God called him to this specific work. Now, when Paul talks about calling then, this is, a, this is, this is greater than just a conviction here. This was not Paul wondering, am I supposed to do this or not do this? God made it abundantly clear. This is more than general conviction here. This is God summoning him to a specific task of apostleship. God chose and called Paul for this work. Now, for every believer, every one of us, none of us in here are called to be an apostle the same way Paul is. But we have been, like Paul, summoned by the king. Summoned by the king. Jesus knows your name, specifically. Andy. And there was a time that Andy heard his voice. Dustin. 
And there was a time that Dustin heard his voice. Leah. And there was a time that Leah heard his voice. The wind blew where it wished and it landed upon us by the grace of God. The call of God came out summoning us forward to walk and follow Jesus. It's more than simple conviction. And this in particular, Paul is saying, is that he was summoned to this work of apostleship. Now this is important when we come to the authority of this letter. Apostle means sent one or messenger. But what Paul is saying here is not just some general term that is sometimes used in the New Testament upon other people who are not one of the twelve apostles. He's specifically talking about an office that he was called to. Paul is saying that God called him to be an actual apostle of Christ like one of the twelve. He references this in other places as well. This kind of apostle, like the twelve apostles, not to be confused with many disciples. Matthew chapter one, it's, or chapter 10, it's interesting. Matthew chapter 10, verse 1 and 2, Jesus calls the disciples to himself, gives them authority... And then names 12 apostles. Apostles are different than just being a disciple. There's a specific task that apostles were called to. And Paul here, in this claim, is saying that God called me to be one of them. An actual apostle. Now, Paul had to defend his apostleship in several places. Because Paul actually believed that he was speaking for the Lord. That his words in these letters were actually God's words. Now all of us in here know that if we write a letter, even if the Holy Spirit inspires us to write it, and we feel inspired to write it, we would not dare claim that these are the inerrant words of God. You shouldn't anyways. But Paul knew in penning these letters that the Holy Spirit was working through them, and so did the other apostles. They knew what was happening with Paul was God's very authoritative word. So Paul was saying that he has the authority to speak on behalf of Christ as a delegate. Like a king's delegate. The delegate would speak with the authority of the king, saying the king's words. This is what Paul was called to. Speak with the authority of Jesus. Speak the very words of God. Now Paul begins to defend himself. Because in Acts chapter 2, we find that a criteria to being an apostle, if you remember, Judas kicked the bucket, hung himself, fell into a field, and his guts exploded. And then in Acts chapter 2, they said, hey, we, we know that there's one who's going to replace the other in this office. They pray about it. They choose a couple men, and they roll die. They cast dice, and they choose Matthias. The criteria... For being a one, among those who could be chosen to be an apostle is that they had to see the risen Lord and be with him in their ministry, see the risen Lord and be commissioned by him. And so there were only a few people that were qualified to be an apostle. Paul had to defend himself in the book of 1 Corinthians. That he in fact was an apostle. He had to defend himself. And he defended himself in 1 Corinthians by appealing to the fact that he saw the risen Lord on the road to Damascus. Jesus actually came to him and then actually commissioned him. He had witnessed Jesus alive and then Jesus had sent him forth as an apostle. So when Paul says that he is called to be an apostle, others knew that that meant he is speaking the very words of God. For instance, Peter 
in 2 Peter chapter 3, verse 15 and 16. I believe this is the only time I'll have you turn. I want you to see this. If you can turn to 2 Peter chapter 2 or chapter 3, verse 15 and 16. I want you to see this. And count the patience of our Lord as salvation, just as our brother Paul, who wrote to you according to the wisdom given to him, and as he does in all his letters when he speaks of these matters. There are some things in them that are hard to understand, which the ignorant and unstable twist to their own destruction as they do the other scriptures. Peter equated Paul's writings to being equivalent with the other scriptures, Old Testament. So when Paul opens the book of Romans and he said, I'm called a bondservant of Christ, called to be an apostle, Paul's recognizing his authority that's God-given, and they are seeing the authority through this letter that God had given Paul as well. So when the Romans would read this letter, they would know these are the words of God. The Holy Spirit has inspired these words. And when the Romans received it, they knew that this claim from Paul was what it was. That these were the very words of God. Paul doesn't stop there either in the first verse. He continues on and he says that he was set apart for the gospel of God. Set apart for the gospel of God. Now, this is the great calling on the Apostle Paul's life. The, the gospel of God. To preach the unsearchable riches of Christ. This gospel of God in, chap, in chapter 1 verse 3 is concerning the Son, Jesus Christ. The good news that we have, that we celebrated with Kurt just a little bit ago, didn't originate with us. The good news of the gospel is God's idea. If it wasn't for God, we wouldn't be saved. This gospel is God's gospel. It's good news that God sends out. It's concerning Jesus Christ. And Paul was set apart to be a minister of this good news. And here's the deal. We get a shorthand version of what the book of Romans is all about. The book of Romans is about the gospel of God. It maps out for us really well. The sections and the divisions in the, in the book of Romans are really helpful. Verse 1 through 4, verse 5 through 8, verses 9 through 11, and verses 12 are chapters 12 through 16. Four breaks, four sections, all about the gospel of God. This is the shorthand version of what Paul's life had been about. The gospel of God. The book of Romans is about this gospel, the good news concerning Jesus Christ. So here's what I want to do. I want to take a bird's eye view in this first sermon. And I want to look at all the book of Romans and just kind of look at each one of these sections and see how it fits into this gospel of God. And I want us, with everything in us, to be able to try to remember this structure as we're working through this book, because there is an overall flow, chapter by chapter flow, to this book that I think will be really helpful as we move through it. So I want us to grasp the structure of the book, and it will help us. So chapters 1 through 4, chapters 1 through 4, here's what Romans chapter 1 through 4 is all about. It's about the human predicament. In Romans chapter 1 through 4, we find that humans have sinned against God. That humanity has suppressed the truth 
that we already know just by being humans. It's in here. We know that there is a God. We have a conscience. And Romans chapter 1 teaches us that humanity has suppressed that truth and pushed it down. And we have worshipped creation over creator. Therefore, the consequence of that, the consequence of Romans chapter 1, what, what Romans 1 is telling us, is that people believe absurd things. Because as, as we suppress the truth, our minds, it actually says in Romans 1 that the minds have been darkened in our understanding. So why do people believe such absurd things? Why do people believe in evolution with all of their heart, soul, mind, and strength? Why do people believe that, evolu- or that, that that's not a baby, that's a fetus? Why do people believe in, and I say believe, in atheism or agnosticism? Why do people believe that sexual perversion is okay? And it's, the answer is, Romans 1 tells us all, it's because they've suppressed the truth. That's why. This is the human condition. Suppression, a pushing down what we innately know to be true just by being human. And it's not just Gentiles who have done this. The Jews have also sinned against God. Chapter 2. And in fact, chapter 3 tells us that all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. A peachy book, right? All have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. G. Campbell Morgan was a preacher in Great Britain. He was the predecessor of Martin Lloyd-Jones at Westminster Chapel. And here's what G. G. Campbell Morgan said about the book of Romans. The book of Romans is the most pessimistic page of literature in which you could ever rest your eyes. And at the same time, it's the most optimistic poem to which your ears have ever listened. This really is going to be an adventure. Let's dive in willingly to the most pessimistic book that's ever been written about the human condition. And see the glory in it and the gospel poem that's there. And let's just dive in and see. Let's spend a couple years seeing how glorious Jesus is. And let's see the love of God the Father to people like us. And let's see of his goodness and mercy. In chapter 4, it ends, chapter 1 through 4, it culminates in chapter 4. And it ends by declaring that Abraham believed and it was counted to him as righteousness. Declaring the truth from the Old and New Testament about salvation by grace through faith. The gospel of God is different than any human could ever possibly make up. Because every human in every humanistic scheme, it's all about you. The gospel of Jesus says it really isn't. The gospel of God says it's all about Jesus. And friends, that's so much bigger of a story than the story of your greatness. How, mu- how long can you really stare into the wonder of your own eyes? If you want to be bored with life, do that. But if you want to be exhilarated, stare into the wonder of His. Life, joy. The gospel of God tells us that powerful humanity cannot save themselves. It's like Romans opens up and Paul says, You can't do this. The Holy Spirit of God saying, You fall short. And the law of God stops the boasting mouths of every single person and shuts them up. But the gospel of Jesus says, the gospel of God says, God loves sinners and he saves them. He loves them and he saves them and makes them his sons and his daughters. We are justified by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone, apart from the works of the law. And friends, aren't you glad that we are not justified by the law? 
Aren't you so glad that we are not saved by the law, but we're saved by Jesus' mighty law-keeping in our place for us? By grace, through faith, and His work. Romans 1-4 through 4 is about the human predicament. And then chapters 5-8, through 8, you get three massive sections that help us out. Romans chapter 5 starts with union with Christ. And then we go into sanctification. And then in chapter 8, we get to the assurance of salvation. Union with Christ, sanctification, and assurance. This all is a part of the gospel of God. The gospel of God tells us in chapter 5 that there are only two people who have ever lived. The first Adam and the second Adam. And the question of your life hangs in the balance. What Adam are you a part of? Which one are you united to? Are you united to the first Adam or are you united to the second Adam? If you're an Adam, there's no hope for you. But if you're in Christ, there's all the hope in the world. Christians are united with Christ. The gospel of God says that those who are in Christ are united to his work. Jesus' work is counted as our work. The gospel of God says that those who are in Christ Jesus are united to every aspect of his life, death, and resurrection. Jesus' life, death, and resurrection is literally counted as yours. You are united to that work. What he did, he gave you credit for. And what you did, and I did, Jesus took the blame for. His union was really ugly. Ours is beauty beyond all measure. He willingly united himself to us. We, by the grace of God, were united with him. Union with Christ. Everything flows from union with Christ. And we will spend time there in several months from now. Jesus works. So God shows us his love that while we were yet sinners, Jesus died for us. It wasn't while we were making ourselves better than everybody else, while we were morally superior to our neighbor or our friends, while we were seeking the truth more than our neighbors or our friends. The Bible says that Jesus came to die and save sinners when they're in the gutter, not when they're clawing their way out. Come as you are, you can't come any other way. Chapters 5 through 8 also tell about sanctification. In the context of union with Christ, we have confidence in our sanctification. In Christ, we are dead to sin and alive to Christ. We are dead to the law and alive to Christ. The gospel of God tells us that sin will not have any dominion over you because you are under grace and not the law. The power of sin has been broken in your life. So by the grace of God, we live like it. Sin will not have dominion over us. It will not win. The enemy has been defeated and sin and its power has been broken. This is what we get to swim in, folks. This is where we're going. And then chapter 8 ends with the assurance of our salvation. And just listen to the words of the Apostle Paul, which are in reality, God the Holy Spirit. What then shall we say to all these things? To everything I just mentioned here in the last five minutes. What shall we say to all these things? If God is for us, who could be against us? If God is for you, who could be against you? He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, will he not also graciously with him give us all things? Who shall bring any charge against God's elect? It's God who justifies. Who is to condemn? Christ Jesus is the one who died, and more than that, he was raised. Who is at the right hand of God, who is interceding for us? Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation... Shall distress? You ever been in tribulation or distress? It's in those moments that we're tempted to think God doesn't love me. But this is telling me in those moments we need to be reminded Jesus does love me. 
he does love me. Shall tribulation or distress separate us from the love of Christ? Or persecution or famine? Or nakedness or danger or sword? As it is written, for your sake we are being killed all the day long. We are regarded as sheep to be slaughtered. No! In all these things we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. For I am sure that neither death nor life nor angels, nor rulers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor heights, nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate you from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus. Friends, you are loved. Don't ever question it. What shall we say to these things? God loves me. Bring on the world. God loves me. It changes everything. God loves me. I am loved by God, and nothing shall separate me from that love. Assurance of salvation. Romans 9 through 11 means so much to me. The grace of God is on display through there maybe more than any other chapters in the entire Bible. Chapters 9 through 11 are about the eternal purposes of God. For those who dare to say, because some were, the promises of God and the purposes of God, they failed. Look at the Jews. They don't even believe in Jesus. We're told about God's purpose of election. God's purposes for nations and persons did not start with nations and persons. God's purpose for you and this world, they're rooted back before the very creation of the world. He has plans and purposes for Israel, for kings in high places, for you and for me, for children, for every cat and dog that lives on this planet. For every single thing that has breath in its lungs. For every grade of blast grass and every particle of dust. God has a plan. The gospel of God tells us that human history is God's history. And those who are confident in the eternal purposes of God do not have to be trapped in the trivialities of this moment. We don't have to be trapped and be prisoners of time. Romans 9-11 through 11 give us 200 proof grace. These chapters slay human pride and lead us to sing about God's grace. Rage all you want at the grace of God, and so many do. But Romans chapter 9 through 11, if you understand it, will be on our knees, weeping, thanking God for His grace. They slay human pride, and human pride hates it. Martin Lloyd-Jones commenting on 9 through 11 says that 9 through 11 show us far from contradicting what God had previously done through the Jews. These chapters are really just confirmation. If you only understood God's purpose, God's activity, you will see it. God's salvation. God is working it out. He will work it out. Until the fullness of the Gentiles have come in and all Israel is saved and the whole church is complete. And then chapters 12 through 16, we hear about Christian conduct. How then shall we live in light of such glorious things? How are we to conduct ourselves? How are we to live? How should Christians behave with each other and the world? And friends, we have some mountain peaks and valleys to walk through together. Arm in arm, hand in hand, pew by pew. Let's just see what the Lord does. May God change us and this world, this region, through what God does through the book of Romans yet again here in 2019 and following. But how do we know all this is true? Back to chapter 1, verses 3 and 4. How do we know this is true? Three big things. 
We're going to jump into these more next week. Chapter 3, or chapter 8, verse, one, verse 3, says this. Or excuse me, starting verse 2. Which he pro- this gospel of God, which he promised beforehand through the prophets and the holy scriptures, concerning his son, who is descended from David according to the flesh, and was declared to be the son of God in power to the spirit of holiness by his resurrection from the dead, Jesus Christ our Lord. Three big things. Number one, we can know the gospel of God is true because the scriptures declared them to be true a thousand years plus before The Old Testament is full of Jesus. You see him everywhere. Every story of redemption, every story of judgment, every story of wrath, every story of deliverance. They're stories of the real story. It's like the movie Sixth Sense. Once you've seen it once, everything makes sense that follow the next time you see it. Have you seen the Sixth Sense? You know, he's dead. Oh, repeat. And you can't see the movie the same way. Same thing with the Old Testament. You can't see it the same way when you meet Jesus. Number two, he's the descendant of David. He is the prophecy spoken 600 or almost 1,000 years before. Again, in 2 Samuel chapter 7, verse 12 and 13, David has promised that he'll have a descendant who will sit on the throne forever. Jesus is that son of David, the long-promised king who would sit on his throne forever. Jesus is the King of kings and the Lord of lords who sits with all authority in heaven and earth right now and his kingdom will have no end. No end. But number three, how do we know this gospel of God is true? The resurrection of Jesus. Hey! Resurrection Sunday. What do you know? It's like God had his hand in this. Jesus is alive. Declared to be the Son of God in power according to the spirit of holiness by resurrection from the dead, Jesus Christ our Lord. Easter Sunday, Jesus isn't dead. Jesus is not dead. He is alive. And this fact changes absolutely everything. Everyone in human history and the world has died or will die and they will stay dead. But Jesus didn't stay dead. It's a statistic that will hit us all. You will die. Maybe today. Maybe tomorrow. Jesus died and came back to life. The fact, this fact is what his followers got killed for. Now there may be a case to make that second generation followers of people who have been duped by the first generations of people will die. But the first generation followers who said, I saw him alive, were killed for it and they did not recant. We saw what we saw Feed us to the lions if you may, but we will not recant. They died because they saw the resurrected Lord. Now today, here's the deal. We are confronted again with the resurrected Jesus. If Jesus is dead, we're to be pitied, mocked. But if he's alive, and he is, then we should bow to him. Trust in him. Obey him in faith. Cast all our hope, cares, anxieties, fears, sins upon him. We should trust that he saves sinners, not by works of the law, but by faith, by grace, through faith alone. This is the gospel of God. Welcome to the book of Romans. It's going to be a long road. After all, you can't preach Romans in a day. Can't build Romans in a day. Brandon McNeely gave me that. But welcome to Jesus. His presence is with us. Let's pray.
Lord Jesus, we thank you for your grace and your mercy. The Gospel of John tells us that when you come, you bring grace upon grace, and that's what we receive. Wave upon wave, just when we're drowning in one wave of grace, we come, here comes another one, and just graces us again. And as we sing these glorious songs, help us to just swim in this grace. The Gospel of God, your idea, it was your idea to save us. It wasn't our novel idea to climb an inch our way up to heaven. We tried that once, the Tower of Babel, it didn't work too well. And even though we had suppressed the truth, you came for us anyways. Our denial and running from you was not enough to scare you away from us. Jesus, you are not ashamed to call us brother. You are not ashamed to call us sisters. Unleash your grace on the city and this region, and our neighbors, friends, and families. Save people. Save people. We want to see it. We want to see a work that can't be explained by anything else, but God showed up. God saved. God did something, and we were caught up in it. It was not our idea. It was not our plan, but God simply did it. May it be. Let's sing to him. If anybody needs prayer, you can come and talk with me. I'd love to pray for you. If not, let's just sing to the Lord together. Would you stand with me?